This week, we're going to talk about endocrine disorders. And if you look in the module, I have one separate presentation on just pathophysiology for endocrine. I'm not going to read a voice over that. I wanted to focus more on the endocrine disorders. So when we talk about adrenal crisis, we usually have a rapid, overwhelming, and potentially fatal um, uh, uh, adrenal cortical insufficiency. And this can be from congenital um, deficiencies, so that they're born with this deficiency, or it can be from acquired issues such as hypo hypofunction of the adrenal gland or an injury to the to the adrenals. And often, sometimes we'll see this with the abrupt withdrawal of chronic steroid use or steroid administration. So when we look at congenital hypoplasia, uh, co congenital adrenal hypoplasia, or CAH, this is a deficiency of the 21-hydroxylase, and it's tested in on the newborn screen. So your male patients will come in with this salt-wasting crisis with one to two, uh, about one to two weeks of age, and this can lead to shock. And here they'll have a decrease in their cortisol aldosterone production, and the pituitary gland wants to help produce more of those uh, hormones. And what it'll do is it'll release more cholesterol, which only leads to more productions of androgens. In our female patients, when you do your physical exam, they generally have um, ambiguous genitalia, which can lead you to, to the diagnosis of congenital adrenal hypoplasia. Now, these conditions are, are, um, are serious. They, come, they can have a profound hypotension, tachycardia. Uh, some of your older kids may have some abdominal pain, vomiting. They may crave salt. Um, when we look at cortisol deficiency, we can have... Um, a lack of a responsiveness to um, uh, volume and catecholamines. So when you have a patient that presents in shock and they're not responding to fluids, we usually then uh, move on to medications such as epinephrine, norepinephrine, or your catecholamines to help increase their blood pressure. And you'll find sometimes you'll have patients that won't even respond um, to those medications. And often what we'll do is we'll treat them with a little bit of hydrocortisone, or well, a significant amount of hydrocortisone. And what that does is it allows them to respond to those catecholamines, increasing their blood pressure. With your aldosterone uh, deficiencies, you can have hyponatremia, hyperkalemia, uh, hypocalcemia. So you can see that with these deficiencies, they can be very life-threatening if they're not treated appropriately or significantly. Your plan of care, um, diagnostically, we can do um, testing of cortisol levels by providing a stimulation test. So we'll get a baseline level. Then in 30 to 60 minutes, we'll also get additional levels. And there's no true number that says that you have a low cortisol level. But if you're, if you're having symptoms of low cortisol levels or you're symptomatic, um, then they'll treat. So, you know, by, by definition in the textbook, it may say less than nine mics per de, uh, micrograms per deciliter may require treatment, but that's in the face of having signs and symptoms or having issues with your um, uh, adrenal insufficiency. They can also do imaging of, of the adrenals and pituitary uh, looking for tumors or, or hemorrhage. And again, your immediate treatment is going to be replace those steroids, those glucocorticoid steroids, um, manage your electrolyte and metabolic disturbances, give them volume, um, uh, uh, volume repletion, and then correct any, of, any events that might have occurred prior to their insufficiency. So hydrocortisone is going to be the, the steroid that we'll use to replace um, that uh, glucocorticoid that's, that's deficient. And in, here you have your pediatric and your adult dosing. Um, our shock dosing will give them 50 milligrams per kilo. So we'll give them a pretty big dose. And then 
um, for our maintenance dosing, we'll go ahead and reduce that by about 20 to 30% per day until we hit a physiologic dosing. Uh, and then we'll monitor those patients, obviously, in the ICU for a period of time, because usually these patients come in pretty sick. And then we'll consult uh, endocrinology to make sure we're, we're on, a, on, a, on a, a, an effective plan for discharge or by the time they're ready for discharge. They're usually on these steroids for, for, uh, um, for, uh, for a few weeks um, after being started on them. They're going to follow up with endocrine um, as an outpatient. We want to let the parents know uh, or make sure that the parents understand the, the seriousness of the disease and being able to understand to recognizing signs and symptoms and make sure that they're able to understand adequate replacement therapy. Uh, if, if it's not provided, it can be, um, can be lethal. Uh, Cushing syndrome is our next uh, disease we'll talk about. And we see this commonly um, in patients that get large doses of glucocorticoids um, for eight, uh, adrenal insufficiency. Um, we can also see this in patients that have um, uh, high amounts of steroids used in their therapy. I've seen this in uh, transplant patients who are getting uh, immunosuppression uh, therapy from steroids. Um, or you can have it from rheumatological diseases as well. And in the child, you know, usually the, um, the adrenal gland is the origin of your Cushing's issues. In the adolescent, it could be from a, from a, from a tumor that's secreting ACTH, um, or, or it could be from um, other types of tumors or metastases. Typically, their presentation is a moon face. They have this centripetal uh, obesity, then you have extra hair growth. It's not attractive um, for the females. A lot of them get very upset when they have these type of um, signs and symptoms. Um, but, you know, if it's related to therapy, once therapy has, has, has completed, usually these symptoms tend to go away. If it's from a tumor, obviously it can be um, more, um, uh, more prolonged. For your treatment, we're going to go ahead and treat the tumors, you know, remove the tumors if they're present. Um, if it's a pituitary tumor, they'll do a transphenoidal um, pituitary resection. Your viralizing tumors, um, these are common tumors of the adrenal glands. Um, they can present by um, um, overdevelopment of pubic and axillary hair. Um, you can have enlargement of the sex organs, and you can also have um, acne, muscular growth, accelerated growth. And the treatment of choice of, for these type of tumors is surgery. Moving on to your um, thyroid gland, um, we'll talk about hypothyroid first. Um, this can actually be congenital acquired, um, excuse me, congenital or acquired. For the congenital patients, we see this um, agenesis or dysplasia of the thyroid gland, uh, which can be autosomal recessive um, type of defect. For the acquired patient, we can see this from autoimmune destruction, such in the cases uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis, or we could see it from iodine deficiency, patients who are undergoing radiation, or patients who have had their um, thyroid removed. Uh, for, the, for the signs and symptoms of presentation, um, they vary from poor feeding to prolonged jaundice. Um, they can have um, the the symptoms of slowing down or being uh, cold. So they can have uh, cold intolerance. They can have constipation. Um, they can have um, uh, developmental delay if not treated appropriately. They can also have um, uh, uh, 
uh, in, in the acquired conditions, they can have a goiter, um, sleep disturbances as well. Our plan, um, usually for diagnostic testing, we, we do test for this in the newborn screen. Um, so hopefully this will be picked up early on, although there can be variances that can make the newborn screen not as um, effective. But if it is if it, it does show up on the newborn screen, then it is definitely investigated further. Um, and Or we could do lab work. We can test. Um, we can do a complete metabolic panel. We can look at a TSH, free T4, the total T4. And your findings will be that you'll have a low T3 and T4 and an, and an elevated TSH. Uh, hormone replacement is usually um, your treatment of choice with Synthroid um, and, of course, supportive therapy. For your hyperthyroid or your thyrotoxicosis, um, here you have an extreme hypermetabolic state. So here you have um, an increase in their metabolism. Um, with Graves' disease, you have this autoimmune process where the thyroid-stimulating antibodies trigger thyroid gland production of the excess hormones. Um, we tend to see this uh, Graves' disease is the most common pediatric cause. You can also have a goiter and a thyroid storm. And with thyroid storm, you have this increasing hyperthyroid type state, uh, which can become, um, uh, can turn into a crisis. So these patients can have, uh, from their history, you'll find that they'll have hyperactivity, they'll, they'll have problems sleeping, they have poor performance in school, uh, heat intolerance. Um, on their physical exam, you'll see changes in their visual acuity. They can have tachycardia, hypertension. And when you have that thyroid storm, that's what you're really worried about is that increasing blood pressure, increasing um, uh, heart rate. They can also have um, delirium. Um, they can have um, diarrhea, um, menstrual irregularities. So the, um, for diagnosing this or looking at your diagnosis, we do have a newborn screen, and it's most helpful if they're testing for both T4 and TSH. If they're only testing for one level, it can be problematic in the sense that the newborn has um, – uh, uh, newborn will have a, a TSH surge um, about two to three days after birth, and then it starts to normalize. So the timing of the, the newborn screen and when they're doing them um, plays, a, plays a role in how well um, they're able to test for this. But we can also um, test our TSH, free, T, free and total T4, T3, um, and you're going to have a low TSH with relatively higher T4s and T3s. We also have other testing we can do here, including ultrasound, to actually look at the um, thyroid gland itself. Our treatment, so if your patient presents in thyroid storm where they have this you know, significant tachycardia, profound hypertension, um, we can treat them with medications such as um, uh, PTU or meth meth methimazole, which inhibits the development of T3 and T4. Um, we can, again, provide supportive uh, treatment with oxygen IV access. We may need to give them beta blockers for their tachycardia and hypertension. Um, High doses of um, dexamethasone and hydrocortisone can help blunt the, um, the conversion from T4 to T3. And then, then they'll, they'll need, there needs to be a plan on how we're going to treat this condition long term. So this, you know, are they going to provide surgery to remove the thyroid um, and then put, put place the patient on supplementation? Or do we need to do radiation therapy and provide the same? So now we'll talk about diabetes insipidus. And this essentially is 
a deficiency of your antidiuretic hormone, resulting in large volumes of urine um, uh, being excreted. And there's two different types. There's your central DI, which involves the pituitary glands release of antidiuretic hormone. And that can be uh, impacted either by a failure to secrete or some kind of tumor that's, you know, could be pressing on the pituitary um, or your nephrogenic DI. Here you have a resistance of the renal collecting ducts um, to the circulating volumes of antidiuretic hormone. And despite the changes, you have this um, lack of water reabsorption despite the changes in serum osmolarity. So here you have more and more free water being lost. You have an increase of um, concentration of sodium and osmolarity in the blood, and you still don't have any response to your antidiuretic hormone to help reabsorb some of that water. So again, you know, when we, when we had our first seminar, I talked about serum osmolarity, um, and this formula is going to come back to haunt you. It's one that we need to know it's one that we need to remember. And in this lecture, I'm going to tell you a few different instances and in when, in when you need to calculate your serum osmolarity. So anyone that presents in diabetes insipidus or SIADH or cerebral salt wasting, which I'll talk about both in a, in a minute, we need to calculate our serum osmolarity because that's going to let us know how, how much osmolarity is in the blood. And the importance of that is if we have too rapid of a shift in that osmolarity, in the brain, we can have cerebral edema or we can have herniation. Because what's happening here is water's gonna follow the higher concentration of solutes. So when you increase the serum osmolarity, water's going to rush to that higher concentration. So you're either going to pull out water from the tissue into the bloodstream because there's a higher concentration, or you're gonna force water into the tissues from the bloodstream because there's a lower concentration in the intravascular system. So again, this formula is easy to remember. It's two times your serum sodium plus your glucose divided by 18 plus your BUN divided by 2.8. Now here we have, uh, again, this can be, you know, diabetes insipidus can be a, a genetic or congenitally acquired. Um, it can be from different types of tumors. Um, or it can be from different types of surgeries. Um, uh, it can be temporary or permanent. Your nephrogenic DI, again, can be congenital, uh, can result from renal disease, metabolic conditions. Um, and again, um, if it's medication-induced or it's from a metabolic condition, it can be reversed when those conditions re uh, are resolved. So here for your presentation, I've put this nice little chart together for you. And we're going to look at urine, um, we're going to look at components in the serum and components in the urine. So first thing we look at is how much urine output do we have? And in diabetes insipidus, it's increased. So you have this large free water loss. So that what, what results is you have this concentrated blood, right? So you're going to have a high serum sodium, right? Your urine is going to be almost like water. So it's going to have a low specific gravity. Your serum osmolarity is going to be high because of that high sodium. Your urine osmolarity is going to be low because it's dilute urine, which also results in low urine sodium. And because you're peeing out all that free water, you now have a low CVP. So the management for diabetes insipidus is going to include fluid volume replacement and to provide them with exogenous vasopressin or antidiuretic hormone. 
Our goal of treatment is going to um, stabilize this patient. So we're going to protect their airway if needed, provide IV access. We're going to restore their hemodynamics. We're going to replace their water deficit. We're going to correct their electrolyte um, abnormalities. And then we're going to continue to monitor these patients. So initially, they may require some food boluses, but we need to continuously monitor these patients. If we're giving them antidiuretic hormone, you don't want to overshoot it because when we overshoot it, then we'll go into a condition called serum of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone. So now you have too much vasopressin on board, and I'll talk about that in a second. So these patients, we have to monitor them very closely, and we're going to check their serum sodiums. We're going to check their urine sodiums, their urine osmolarity. We're going to check their um, serum osmolarity, and we're going to monitor their isonos very carefully. So we want to make sure that we calculate that serum osmolarity as well as making sure we're watching um, how they're progressing from this illness. Now, if this is a new diagnosis, you may need to do some further investigation. Um, oftentimes, when we have patients in diabetes insipidus, we have a known cause. So they'll be admitted to the ICU with a known tumor, or they'll have a known resection of a tumor, um, or they'll have a known uh, nephrogenic um, cause. And then what we'll do is we'll monitor them from there. But if, the, if we don't know, then we'll have to do some further investigation. And that may include MRI, CT scan, uh, depending on what's going on. Um, if we have someone that presents with profound hypernatremia, um, if, it's, if it occurs over just a short period of time, we could rapidly um, uh, correct them. But if it lasts longer uh, than uh, two days and it's, you know, you know, this is prolonged hypernatremia, then we have to take in that consideration in replacing their serum sodium levels um, slowly. We don't want, we don't want to, excuse me, we want to help reduce their serum sodium levels slowly. We don't want to go for it. We don't want to do it too quickly, um, which can cause um, cerebral edema. Um, we want to make sure that we're able to do it um, at, a, at a relatively slow rate. So no more than one to two MEQs um, every um, two to four hours. And the way I remember is no more than 10 to 12 in a day, right? So you want to make sure that their sodium doesn't drop no more than 10 to 12 MEQs in a day. Um, we will put them on IV vasopressin um, uh, and watch them in the ICU setting. Um, it's, it's, it's challenging sometimes when you have someone with like a nephrogenic DI or that has a DI that's a chronic problem and you're, you don't have a Foley in place and you don't have um, the ability to watch how much urine is coming out and you have to watch more diapers. So in the ICU setting, it's much more easier to do with Foley catheters and such. If they're not um, on IV vasopressin, they'll be placed on desmopressin, um, which can be intranasal um, or oral. Uh, your disposition, again, the caregivers need to understand monitoring the um, eyes and nose carefully. So with the patient that goes home, we'll be like, you know, they'll ask the patients or the parents to, to monitor how much the urine output is or watch the number of diapers or even in some cases weigh the diapers so they know they have a good idea of how much urine output there is and making sure that they get their medications. So if they're getting intranasal de desmopressin or DDAVP, we have to make sure they don't have a cold, right? Because if you have an, a nasal congestion and you're giving an intranasal medication, they have to um, have a plan to either come in to be monitored or have um, different medications that can be administered. Again, they need to follow up with their uh, endocrinologist or nephrologist and be monitored closely. And the family needs to make sure that the patient stays on top of their medications. 
So next we'll talk about SIADH or the serum of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone. And here, this is just the complete opposite of diabetes insipidus. And that's the way I like to remember it. It's the easiest way. If, if you learn one way really well, you'll know how to determine the other one because it's the complete opposite. So here we have um, a decrease in urine output because there's too much antidiuretic hormone circulating. Their serum osmolarity drops because their blood becomes super dilute. Their urine becomes super concentrated. Um, we often um, can see this um, from a variety of different things. Um, they can have a CNS disorder. Again, if we've started them on uh, antidiuretic hormone therapy and we've given too much, obviously we could see it then too. Um, one of the most common causes of hyponatremia in patients is SIADH. So we have to be very careful to, to evaluate for this hyponatremia. So we're looking to see if there's any type of brain tumors. Are they on um, chemotherapy agents? Um, there are some that are um, more prone to this, like vincristine, uh, cyclophosphamide. Um, you also can see it in patients with bacterial meningitis. But there is one instance that you see this quite a bit, and this is in patients that are intubated. So if you have someone who's on positive pressure ventilation, you can have a decrease in the venous return, reducing your cardiac volume and your atrial stretch. And the reduction in that volume um, stimulates, or the, the reduced volume stimulates your baroreceptors, right, to help increase your antidiuretic hormone release. And also the stretch on your atrium causes a release of your, your, um, your ANP or your atrial nit nitriatic peptide, um, which results in fluid retention. So sometimes when we have patients that are intubated, you can see that their urine output drops off, they become a little bit more fluid overloaded, and then once we extubate them, they have this huge diuresis. And it's a natural diuresis, you're not necessarily on any diuretics, but because we've changed those pressures within the chest, we've reduced the stimulation of these um, baroreceptors and, and um, enzymes or to help um, reverse it. So again, looking at our chart, you'll see that it's the complete opposite of diabetes insipidus. So for SIADH, we have a decrease in urine output. We have a low serum sodium. We have a high specific gravity because that urine comes out very concentrated, small amounts. You have serum osmolarity that is low. Your urine osmolarity is high. Your urine sodium is also high because it's concentrated. And your CVP can be normal to high because you're holding on to that fluid, higher blood pressure. And we treat this by giving them fluid restriction and basically wait for that antidiuretic hormone um, to subside. And this can be relatively quick or over a few hours. So for our diagnostics, again, we're going to look at the exact same things that we look for in diabetes insipidus. We're going to do our serum sodium, uh, urine sodium, serum osmolarity, urine osmolarity. We'll look at our sugar, our CMP. Um, we'll calculate our serum osmolarity as well. And then for your patient that has a new diagnosis, we want to look at um, what is the cause. So they'll confirm kidney, thyroid, adrenal function. Um, they'll also look to see if there's any type of tumors. So they'll do head CTs or MRIs to see if there's any type of involvement there. If your patient has seizures, um, the first goal of your hyponatremia is to help um, uh, improve your sodium above 125. So they may require some uh, hypertonic saline 
to help improve their, um, especially if it's a significantly low sodium. So you may have to go from, like, say, 115 and treat them until you get them closer to 125, 122. And you want to make sure that they're no longer seizing. And then you want to go to a generally low, slow um, correction. Because uh, in these patients, if you rapidly increase their sodium, um, they can be at risk for developing central pontine myelinosis. The treatments are going to include treat the hyponatremia, find the cause for your SIADH, and then fluid restrict them. Again, with your disposition, um, very similar to that of your um, diabetes insipidus patient, you want to make sure that they have good follow-up, uh, make sure that it resolves um, and there's no further out, outpatient treatment, or if they have diabetes insipidus, make sure that they're being treated and the parents understand when they've gotten too much of their antidiuretic hormone. Next, we'll talk about cerebral salt wasting. Now, this condition is not necessarily uh, fully understood. Um, here we have renal losses of sodium. Um, sometimes this is due to intracranial disease or injury leading to a hyponatremia and volume depletion. So here you get a little bit of both DI and SIADH. So you have the sodium um, losses from the kidney. Uh, you have a, a higher volume uh, depletion, and they develop this hyponatremia. Can occur from acute uh, CNS disease. Um, it can be from, again, like I mentioned earlier, from traumatic brain injuries. Um, most common admitting diagnosis is brain tumor followed by um, hydrocephalus. Again, you have your little chart here um, for your cerebral salt wasting. They have an increase in urine output. They have a low sodium because they're wasting their salt. They have a urine-specific gravity uh, that's usually pretty high because, again, they're, they're getting rid of all their salt. Um, they have serum osmolarity that could be normal to low. Their urine osmolarity is usually pretty high, again, because of that high concentration of sodium. Again, urine sodium is lost and their CVP is low. Um, the management for this would be sodium replacement and fluid replacement. So here's a chart that I want you guys to memorize. I want you guys to write it down, know it well, because um, I guaranteed you're going to be tested on um, diabetes insipidus. You'll be tested again on SIADH, and you'll be tested again on cerebral salt wasting. So the one thing that I've found to be the most beneficial when you're dealing with patients um, in this category um, is to memorize your values that you have off to the left and memorize your DI and your cerebral salt wasting because your diabetes insipidus is the complete, uh, your SIADH is the complete opposite of your diabetes insipidus. And if you know both DI and cerebral salt wasting, you can figure out what your SIADH is. Um, and this is just the easiest way to do it. And, you know, memorize it, write it down, um, tuck it away somewhere. Um, because you will you will be tested on it um, not only here in the program but on you know again and again. Uh, again, you want to measure your um, antidiuretic hormone um, and a well, excuse me, the measurement of ADH and ANP are not as helpful um, distinguishing uh, between SIDH from cerebral salt wasting. Um, here you clearly have to go by your presenting uh, signs and symptoms. Again, your management goal is to treat the underlying cause and then to help replace the serum sodium and replace your volume. 
your disposition. Um, usually this occurs in the hospital and does not go home. The patients usually don't. This is usually resolved by the time they go home. And they typically respond to therapy. Um, and frequently do they have to be placed on chronic sodium replacements. Um, typically this is usually in the acute phase of either uh, some kind of CNS pathology or some type of injury. And then once that injury has subsided or improved, um, this condition typically resolves um, prior to going home. Next, we'll talk about diabetic ketoacidosis. Um, and here you have an insulin deficiency. So this diabetic ketoacidosis typically occurs in type 1 diabetics. So to briefly go over type 1 versus type 2, and I didn't go into great detail in that on this slide, your type 1 diabetic does not make insulin. Um, they have either some genetic predisposition or there is some kind of autoimmune thing, um, autoimmune response that actually kills um, their um, the cells in the pancreas that help produce insulin. And your type 2 diabetic is someone um, who has um, insulin resistance or they have, um, uh, they, they do make insulin, they just don't have the ability to um, uh, help mobilize or reduce the, the glucose with that insulin based on that insulin resistance. This, uh, so what happens in, in DKA is that they didn't take their insulin um, or their insulin isn't um, uh, being utilized appropriately, or there's an overwhelming response to some type of infection or inflammation that causes this sugar to go up and there's not enough insulin to help treat that elevated sugar we get this hyperosmolar state um, because you have all this extra sugar that's in the bloodstream, which causes a profound diuresis again, or this dehydration where they have a lot of water loss. Um, you have the breakdown of fatty acids because the sugar um, is in the bloodstream. It's not going into the cells. The cells are still trying to find a way to develop sugar or energy um, to, 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 to maintain homeostasis. And what we have is a, um, a breakdown of these fats, which then converts into acetoacidic uh, aceto, acid and beta-hydroxybutyrate uh, beta acids and ketones. Um, and then the ketones are released into the bloodstream. With these ketone formations, this develops a lactic acidosis, which causes further uh, decrease in tissue perfusion, resulting in a more profound metabolic acidosis. With the decrease in peripheral glucose uptake um, and compensatory liver and kidney gluconeogenesis and glycogen glycogenolysis, and because the, the sugar is not being utilized appropriately because there's not enough insulin there, you have this perpetuating cycle where the liver and the kidney are trying to make more, um, they're, they're partaking in gluconeogenesis and glycogenolysis, and more and more sugar is being um, added to the system, and you have this perpetual problem. Uh, DKA can be very deadly without rapid recognition. Um, careful insulin replacement and fluid electrolyte therapy. Um, so there are differences in how we treat these patients from pediatric patients and adults. And I'll talk a little bit about that um, uh, in just a minute when we talk about treatments. Um, but the big concern 
is um, you have an immature cerebral and autoregulatory mechanisms um, which can make, uh, um, in, in, in severe DKA, you can have complications with cerebral edema. And that is your biggest fear with a DKA patient. If you don't treat them appropriately, they can develop cerebral edema, herniate, and it can be fatal. So again, our causes, you know, usually most DKAs come in with their first onset of finding out that they're diabetic. Um, so they have this, they present in DKA and they find out that they're type 1 di diabetic. Um, it could be from the patient that's non-compliant, not taking their insulin, or they missed a dose for whatever reason. Um, we can also have stress um, that's, that's um, present with illness. So if someone has an overwhelming infection of some sort of pneumonia um, uh, of the such can cause or put them into a DKA. Or you can have uh, a new diabetic that's not taking their insulin appropriately um, and they're underdosing themselves um, can also lead to DKA. Uh, this presentation, usually um, you want to get a very detailed history. So you want to find out um, if, they, if they're a known diabetic, you know, when was the last time they took their insulin? What's their dosing? Um, are they self-administering it or are the parents giving it? Do they have a proper meal plan or a meal plan that they could share with you? Do they count carbs? Um, are they on fixed regimens of insulin? And then they're going to have the classic signs and symptoms. They'll have that polyuria, so they'll have this... The parents will complain that they've, they're constantly wetting the bed or there's a huge wet diaper every hour or so, or they're constantly going to the bathroom. Um, they'll have polydipsia, which is the increase in thirst. So they're always thirsty because of that volume loss with the polyuria. And then they can have polyphagia, where they're always hungry. And despite eating a lot, they, they typically have uh, significant weight loss because, again, they're not utilizing sugar appropriately because they don't have the insulin to help um, move the move the dex, uh, the glucose into the cells. They can also have visual disturbances, abdominal pain, nonspecific weakness. On physical exam, when the DKA patient comes in, generally they'll have a decrease in their GCS. They'll have lethargy, irritability, uh, but you definitely want to make sure that their 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 neuro exam um, can be. Uh, monitored and evaluated. If they start losing their mental status or they become more obtunded, that's when you can get into trouble with these patients. You have to have a concern for cerebral edema. Um, they can present with small respirations where they're trying to blow off their CO2. So they're trying to they're trying to develop a respiratory compensation for this profound metabolic ac acidosis. Um, the ketones can cause a fruity smelling um, fruity smell to their breath or their urine. Um, they can have a tachycardia. Um, they can have all the signs of dehydration. They can have tachycardia, pale, school, pale cool skin, dry mucous membranes, sunken eyes, all, all of such. Um, your diagnosis, and I was taught by a wise PICU doc one time, in order to diagnose DKA, you have to have a D, a K, and an A. So you have to have a diabetes, you have to have a hyperglycemia or, the, or diabetic or a known um, increase in blood sugar. And usually their sugars are usually greater than 200. The K is going to be positive ketones in the urine. Um, so this, you know, this is causing, you know, the, the, the fat cells are being broken down and these ketone bodies are being released. And they're going to have an acidosis. Um, <clears throat> so their acidosis is usually going to be pretty significant. Um, usually their pHs are less than uh, 7.3, um, but a, 
most DKAs, new diagnosis, so they can come in, they can have a 6.7, a 6.8 um, pH. Um, bicarbs are generally pretty low. I've seen them as low as three or four. Um, their CO2s are also low because they're trying to compensate um, for that metabolic acidosis. The lab work you want to do is you want to definitely um, get a BMP, Mag, and Foss. We're going to check our blood gas for that acidosis. And you guys are going to calculate your anion gap, right? You want to make sure that when you evaluate this that you're dealing with an elevated gap acidosis. Um, you also want to check for ketones um, in the urine. You can check for uh, ketones in the blood by checking a beta-hydroxybutyrate. You can also assess your serum osmolarity. Right, so in cases of DKA, you also want to check to make sure they're not hyperosmolar because if they're hyperosmolar, we'll have to do additional treatments to them and treat them slightly different. You can get a baseline uh, hemoglobin A1C. Um, you'll want to check a CBC with differential to see if there's any underlying infection, which could have been the trigger for their DKA. Um, again, checking their chest x-ray for any type of um, illness or, or pathology present, and I'll also check for a baseline EKG. Um, your plan of care should include frequent vital signs. Usually these patients are monitored with neurochecks pretty frequently. Um, when they initially present, you're going to be checking them every half hour to hour. Um, you want to definitely put in a couple of peripheral IVs uh, because you want to make sure that they have um, enough access, not only for fluid um, administration, but they're going to need frequent blood sampling. So they're going to need frequent VBGs to check their um, their blood gases, and we're also going to want to check their potassium as well as their blood sugars as well as their sodiums. So we're definitely going to be monitoring them a little bit more closely. They're definitely going to be on a cardiac monitor of some sort, strict I's and O's, and they don't get to eat until they fully corrected. So depending on where you are and, and what your policy is for checking the um, uh, fully correction, most of the time it's usually a bicarb that or a pH that's corrected to at least 725 your bicarb is usually above 15, but I've worked in places where they wanted to correct them above 18. Um, and uh, we want to make sure their blood sugar is within uh, range for their illness. So um, if their projected blood sugar should be between 70 and 120, that's where we kind of want it. Uh, but usually they want it below 150 or so. Um, when they first present, the first thing we want to do is we want to treat their volume um, treat their dehydration, give them some volume. Um, they usually give them 10 to 20 cc's per kilo of fluid. And then we'll start them on uh, rehydration. So depending on where you work, some places use a two-bag system, and I'll talk about that in a little bit, where we put them on two times, one and a half to two times maintenance, and then we'll um, give them normal saline with uh, electrolyte replacement um, if their blood sugars are above like 250. If they're between like 250 and 150 or 300 and 150, they'll uh, give them a little bit of sugar back. So they'll mix uh, bag one, which is normal saline. Bag two will have D10 normal saline um, and give them the same volume uh, as far as replacement. And then if their blood sugar drops below uh, 150, they'll just give them the dextrose concentration. And what they want to do there is they want to be able to um, not have to fluctuate the insulin. So they'll start your insulin, um, give them 0.1 units per kilo per hour, and you kind of want to leave it there until they're corrected because uh, you don't want to have these changes in the insulin therapy, and then you have these changes in osmolarity, and that can cause uh, more injury to the brain um, as far as cerebral edema and fluctuations of fluids and stuff like that. 
your goal of the management is to to um, Your, your goal in management is to treat the complications um, and to help correct their, um, their acidosis as well as um, establish um, uh, insulin regimens. When we're monitoring these patients, we'll do serial lab tests. So we'll check their, their glucose, usually hourly for the first few hours until they're starting to trend downward. Um, we'll also want to be able to check their, um, their sodiums, uh, their BMPs, their pHs, ketones, They'll be assessed every three to six hours, depending on your on your um, the guidelines at your facility. Um, but you definitely want to check them very closely because you don't want them to drop too quickly, and you don't want them to kind of hang out where they're at, and you're not treating them enough. Um, again, you also want to check your other electrolytes like your calcium, your phosphate, and your mag. Um, you want to check those initially, and then every 12 hours. So when we're doing fluid replacements, we'll use a two bag system, and within the two bag system, essentially what we're trying to do is we're trying to give them um, no sugar, just straight saline um, when their blood sugars are above a certain threshold, say 250 or 300, depending on your unit, your hospital policy. And then once they drop below that, we'll introduce a little bit of dextrose. And then if they drop below, um, say, 150, they'll keep them on just dextrose and your electrolyte um, replacements just until they've corrected. Once they've corrected, you could stop all that um, fluid. But the goal is, is to maintain uh, a, a slow dropping blood sugar, giving them significant fluid replacement and not having to adjust your insulin. The other key thing is you do not give any potassium replacements until they've uh, demonstrated that they're, they're making urine and that their, blood sh their potassium levels are starting to trend downward. So initially what happens because of that acidotic state, your potassium is going to leave the intracellular space and move intravascularly. That's why you have a, a bump up in your potassium. And then once you start giving them insulin and you start correcting their acidosis, more of that potassium is going to move back into the intracellular space, causing a depletion in your potassium um, once you start your therapy. So your insulins will start to... your um, your K's will start to drop and you'll have to start to support that. And the reason why they use phosphorus is uh, KFOS is because the same thing happens to your, phosph your, your phosphorus. So you want to make sure that you're replacing those electrolytes that are, um, that are being depleted or, or re, re, um, reassigned. It's probably a good way to put it. Um, in insulin, uh, insulin therapy for pediatrics, you do not give an insulin bolus. Um, and this is something that's commonly done in the adult world. And the way I, the way I was taught this and the way I understand it is um, the, child, the child's um, uh, CNS structure is much more fragile than that of an adult. So if you start giving them uh, medications or therapies that rapidly change the osmolarity or rapidly shift fluids, you can cause these shearing forces and cause injury um, to those um, the, the to the to the nervous system. So worrying about cerebral edema is significant when I'm taking care of a DKA patient. So the the big no nos are no um, insulin boluses, and I can tell you almost every outside or small small emergency room wants to give these kids um, insulin boluses because their sugars are generally pretty high and there's temptation there, right? And the other big no-no is no bicarb boluses. And it's for the same reason, right? So you have sodium in the bicarb and you're going to cause even more shifting of, of 
or even more uh, changes in their serum osmolarity, and it's just not good for them. So you're going to correct the, the bicarb by replacing their fluids, right? So by giving them fluids, you're going to be able to help bump up their bicarb, and you're correcting their acidosis, which is also going to help um, in, improve their bicarb. So you do not, the two no-nos, you do not give insulin boluses to your DKA patient, and you do not give sodium bicarb replacements to your DKA patient. Now, the last thing we're going to talk about is the hyperglycemic hyperosmolar state. So with, with um, the, 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 now that we're seeing more and more adolescent patients that are obese and overweight, we're getting more and more of these patients that are type 2 diabetics. And your hyperglycemic hyperosmolar state, um, they usually present with a very high sugar. So these sugars, in the textbook, it's greater than 600, but anyone I see with a blood sugar that's over 1,000, uh, I'm very concerned that they have a hyperglycemic hyperosmolar state. And if we look back at our serum osmolarity formula, if your sugar is really high, if your sodium is really high, you're going to be hyperosmolar. If your sodium is really, if your sodium is really high, if your sugar is really high, or if your BUN is really high, you're going to be hyperosmolar. Right, and that just complicates a patient that has um, this DKA presentation. And we're seeing more and more patients that are not just—they're not just hyperglycemic, hyperosmolar, but they're a combination of both DKA and being hyperosmolar. And we have to make sure that we lower their blood sugars much slower. So we'll give them probably maybe 0.05 units of insulin versus 0.1. Uh, per kilo per hour, and we'll probably give them more fluid replacements because these patients come in severely dehydrated. Because that sugar is so high, they have this osmotic diuresis, and they're just diuresing like crazy. Um, their pHs are generally not as low as your DKA patients, and their bicarbs generally are not as low. And sometimes they can have no small or mild ketones, so they, they, it's not going to be in proportion of what you would expect someone with such a high blood sugar. And then their serum osmolarities generally are, are pretty high, greater than 320. Um, they can come in with altered mental status and stupor, and these patients should scare you a little bit because they can um, get pretty sick pretty fast. Um, we definitely want to make sure that we're going to treat them with slower. Um, we want to lower their blood sugar much slower than we would with someone um, that's uh, presenting with a lower blood sugar and say in DKA. And we want to make sure we give them significant um, dehydration therapy. And you definitely want to consult endocrinology and make sure you're doing this correctly and making sure that they're on board um, to help you plan the treatment for these patients. All right, that's it. That's my presentation for this week. Um, I'll see you guys on Wednesday for the seminar. Um, take care.